We start today a new sermon series on the letter to the Colossian church, and I would invite you to turn with me to the very first chapter. You'll find that on page 983 in the Bibles that we have for you in the pews. Right before COVID hit, I had the privilege of officiating at the wedding of my niece, Alexis, but that wedding almost didn't take place because she almost didn't survive infancy. About 25 years ago, she stopped breathing in the middle of the night. Now, fortunately, they had a monitor on her, were able to get her to the hospital. But at the same time that she stopped breathing, my mother, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, hundreds of miles away, my mom's really old, (laughs) hundreds of miles away, my mom, in the middle of the night, same time that my niece stops breathing, she wakes up and knows she has to pray, doesn't know whom to pray for, doesn't know what's going on, but she gets out of bed, walks outside, and begins to prayer walk. It's the middle of the night and pleading with the Lord for someone who is in trouble, not knowing who. The next day, after Alexis was okay, she found out whom she was praying for and why. Now, I tell that story to to say this, we don't know all that God is doing in the midst of something like that, but I, I believe that at the urging of the Holy Spirit, my mother got up and prayed, and that had she not, Alexis may not have survived that night. Now, I, I say that for this reason. I think prayer does so much more than we think it does. It doesn't twist the arm of God to do something that he doesn't want to do. But instead, God has set up the world in such a way that the the prayers of God's people are one of the significant ways that God works in the lives of the people that we pray for. This morning, as we start our series on Colossians, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most important prayers in all of Scripture. Of course, they're all important, but this was a beautiful prayer. And we're going to start looking at this as a way for us to understand perhaps how we should be praying for each other. And then we'll focus a lot on the content of his prayer as we seek to follow out what he is praying for. I want to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. The early verses are for context, and then we'll focus on the actual prayer that begins in verse 9. So, Colossians 1, beginning at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Paul is the author of the letter. Timothy, his protege, his disciple, evidently wrote the words down as Paul dictated them to him. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, uh, that's in modern-day Turkey, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, 
as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, uh, Paul has never yet visited the church in Colossae. Epaphras actually heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, went back to his hometown, Colossae, and, and spread the gospel and planted or started this church that is there. But then what we see beginning in verse 9 is the actual prayer that Paul is praying for the church. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And I want you to focus on the content of this prayer, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for this amazing prayer. I pray that as we take a look at it, You would Help us not only to pray these things for each other, but to be those who live these things out ourselves. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said, Paul's never, ever visited Colossae, at least not yet, and we don't know that he ever actually made it. But he was deeply concerned for the church there because there were false teachers in their midst who were proclaiming false doctrines, teaching false practices. And no one knows exactly what the nature of the false teaching was, though we're going to see hints of it as we continue in our series in this book. But the gist of it was this. God is not enough. You need something more than Jesus if you're going to live the kind of life that God wants you to live, if you're going to live a life that is pleasing to God. And so Paul writes to say, no, that is not right. You have everything you need in God to live a life that is pleasing to God. In fact, the one thing you need in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that's how the passage breaks down. That really is at the very heart of the prayer Everything else is commentary or kind of rolling out examples of what the prayer is. So, Paul prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, walk in a manner that pleases God. Now, that's the, the heart of the passage, the heart of the prayer. So, we're going to focus there this morning, and we're going to do so in that order. So, how does Paul start his prayer? With these words, that you be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, wisdom is the key word here. 
And I'm going to camp out for a while on this word. In fact, the, uh, the meat of the message is, is helping us to try to understand what this wisdom is. Because if we don't get that, uh, we don't walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And, and yet, I think so many of us have a false understanding of what spiritual wisdom actually is. Uh, we, we think about it in a wrong way. So, so let me, by analogy give you an example of what wisdom is not. Now, if you've ever been to the Spencer, North Carolina Train Museum, which is where they have all kinds of events now, like uh, the Polar Express train ride, if you've ever been there, that's where my grandfather worked all his career. It wasn't a museum then. It was a real train station and working yard. Now, as a kid, of course, it was quite exciting to go there and see all the trains coming from different directions. But if you had asked me then why this train comes from here, this one comes from here, I wouldn't have a clue. But interestingly, just recently, I saw an aerial view of the entire yard and all of the buildings and everything that's going on there. And so now I know that if the train is coming from over here, it's coming because it's been touched up, been painted. If it's coming from here, it's been rebuilt. That's kind of, or fixed up, as it were. If it's coming from here, it's been to the, to the roundhouse where there's a turntable and it has to turn around to go the other way. So I now understand, you know, the, the, the reason, the, the meaning behind these different trains coming from different places. I think a lot of followers of, of Jesus feel like that real wisdom is having that kind of aerial view of what God is doing and then understanding his secret purposes behind all that's going on. But what I want to share with you this morning is that that really is the opposite of spiritual wisdom. Possibly the smartest person that uh, I have ever met is uh, J.I. Packer, and he makes it really clear. He's got a chapter in his book on knowing God, on wisdom, the gift of wisdom that God gives to us. And he says the opposite is actually true. He makes the, the point there that the wise person is aware that there's so much she cannot understand from God's perspective and doesn't try to discern the hidden purposes of God in the unusual, sometimes difficult events that come her way. Now, read Ecclesiastes, and you'll agree pretty quickly with the author of that book that so much that goes on around us in this world is bewildering. And I think we see that especially when we're so cognizant of, of difficulties either in our life or in the lives of those who are close to us. Evil, as you see in Ecclesiastes, runs rampant. The wicked prosper at times. The good don't at times. Uh, good people die in terrible ways. I mean, you name it. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, no one can comprehend God's work under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. And, and here's what happens. If, if your understanding of, of wisdom is to be able to understand the hidden purposes of God in the events that come your way, uh, the harder you try to understand God's purposes, the more tempted you are to conclude that, that life really does seem very pointless 
at times. I mean, really, I mean, when you look around at so many of the world events, when you look around at your own life, the suffering that you endure, the suffering that your friends and family endure, it, it often feels like there is not a benevolent God who is actually seeing to the ordering of events in this world. And I think we feel that so much when life is just not easy. So I want you to think about it like this. I love the way one pastor puts it. He said, just because we don't and can't think of a good reason or a good purpose for some of the difficult things that come our way doesn't mean that there aren't good purposes. And, and to be more to the point, one, one pastor puts it this way, you know, if, if God were to give me his omnipotence, his ability to, to control all that goes on, in the world for 24 hours. If he would give me that omnipotence for 24 hours, I would change a lot of things. But if he would also give me his wisdom at the same time, I would leave everything just as it is. The truth is that God in his wisdom to make and to keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden almost everything, I think, that we would like to know about the, the providential purposes that He is working out in our lives when we go through difficult seasons. And so wisdom is not what we often think it is. It is not this aerial view of all of the different things going on and the ability to understand why they are going on when they do. So the question is, what is wisdom then? And that takes us back to Verse 9, wisdom is to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Now, that sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. There are two things that this is not. One is what we've been talking about, this aerial view. The other thing that this is not referring to is, is guidance. You know, God does guide us in, in many different ways. You know, what kind of career should we choose? Should we marry? Whom should we marry? But that's not what is here either. What this wisdom is, what this will of God is here, is His general will for all Christians. A couple of examples. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. So wisdom then, the spiritual wisdom that is here, is not the ability to understand that all God is doing in this world and in your life and this definition comes from, from J.I. Packer, and I think it's one of the most helpful definitions I've ever read about wisdom. Wisdom is a disposition to confess that God is wise 
and to cling to Him and live for Him in light of His Word, no matter how difficult life can be at times. See, when we lack wisdom in that moment, when we, when we aren't um, viewing life in that way, when difficult things happen, what do we do? Well, we, whether we would say it or not, often we would think to ourselves or at least feel that, gosh, if I were in charge, I would do things differently. This wouldn't happen. This wouldn't happen. And sometimes we can take that another step and become angry with God, even bitter. We can become disillusioned with God. We can walk away with, from God. But wisdom is a kind of humility that recognizes God is wise. And though we cannot discern all that He is doing, what He is doing is right. And it's that kind of wisdom, the humility to recognize God is wise, that enables us then to do what Paul is praying for them. And of course, by analogy for us, and that is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. You've got to have the first thing in place. You've got to understand wisdom and humility. Those two things go together. The humility of understanding that God is wise, and we need to follow His commands, cling to Him, no matter how difficult life can become. So, let's talk a bit about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord that is fully pleasing to Him. Paul gives us four examples here of what that looks like. First, bearing fruit. We see this in verse 10. In every good work. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And finally, giving thanks to the Father. Now, each of these four examples of what it looks to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord pleasing to Him, is the fruit of wisdom, because wisdom does involve our humility, our humble walking with God. And it teaches us then, it trains us to walk by faith in God, not by sight, because we can't know a lot of what is going on in the world, or at least what it means. So, let's just look at each of those four quickly, and I want to show you how this humble wisdom plays into each of these. So, how do you bear fruit? Well, by being humble enough to realize that you cannot bear fruit apart from faith in Christ, clinging to Him by faith. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? Well, by being humble enough to realize that God is so much greater than you can possibly understand, so you soak yourself in the Scriptures continually to learn all you can. How are you strengthened with all power according to this glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, how do you find the energy, the ability to get through the difficult seasons of, of life and to do so patiently and with great joy? 
not happiness in what is going on, but joy in the midst of the difficulty, knowing that you are still the Lord's and He is at work. Well, how do we get that? How are we strengthened? By being humble enough to realize that it's always, always, always His power and not ours that enables us to endure all things with patience and joy. In other words, it is by being humble enough to admit that you are weak. That's a part of wisdom. God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, how did Paul responded to that. He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When was the last time you actually boasted of your weaknesses? So that the power of Christ may rest upon you. And finally, then, how do you become the kind of person who regularly gives thanks to the Father? Well, by being humble enough to realize that He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints. That He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, He has done all of these things for you. Uh, You've not done one of them for yourself. And, And when you realize that, it sure makes you thankful, very thankful. I want to finish this morning with an illustration from the life of David Ireland. He's in heaven now. He died with a neuromuscular disease. But when he was first diagnosed, he was told by the doctor, uh, you'll never be able to have a child with your wife. But they were able to conceive When she became pregnant, though, David didn't think that he was going to live long enough to see his son be born. And after he learned that he was a boy, he wrote letters to him that his son could read later on when he grew up. He wrote a book of letters called Letters to an Unborn Child. And in one of those letters, which is a treasure, he introduces his mother to his son. And I want to read a bit of that letter to you because I think it's it's such a profound understanding of what we've been looking at today. This is what he wrote in his letter. When the two of us go out to eat, this is what she must do. She puts me in my wheelchair. She takes me into the bathroom, takes off all my clothes, wills me into the shower, then dresses me. Then I sit and wait while she puts on her clothes because we're going to a restaurant. She then pushes my wheelchair outside, loads me into the car, folds up the wheelchair, goes around to the back of the car, opens the trunk, puts the wheelchair in the trunk, closes the trunk, gets in, and we drive to the restaurant. When we get to the restaurant, everything's reversed. She gets out the wheelchair, brings it to the car door, opens the door, puts me in the wheelchair, shuts the door, locks the car, and pushes me into the restaurant. She orders for me and wipes the drool that's running down from my face. She pays the bill after she's fed me the whole meal, 
takes me back out to the car, opens the door, loads me into the car, puts on my seatbelt, puts the wheelchair in the trunk. She then drives us home and reverses everything again. Then she puts on my pajamas, takes me to the bed, gets me out of the chair, puts me in the bed. And when she is at my side in the bed, she leans over and says these words to me. Thank you for taking me out to eat, honey. It was wonderful. Now, here's the point that I want to make with that. If you do manage in this lifetime to walk in a manner worthy of God, pleasing to Him, and when you die, Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, you're going to feel just like Dave Ireland. As a friend who met Dave put it, if Jesus says that to you, you're going to be tempted to say to him, are you kidding? I was a paralytic. You carried me all the way through. And I promise you, you will take off your crown and you'll fling it across the crystal sea at his feet and you'll say to Jesus, you did everything. All glory and honor be unto you, O Lord, for you qualified me to share in the inheritance of saints, and you delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of your beloved Son. You see, wisdom leads to humility, and humility leads to pleasing the Lord. And pleasing the Lord leads to humility all over again because you realize that none of it was possible without Jesus. You don't need anything other than Jesus, but you sure need Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your Son, without which we could do nothing of any eternal value. We thank you that you rescued us from the domain of darkness where the evil one had us under his thumb, where the evil one wanted nothing but our harm. And he transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son, where your son wants nothing but good for us and works daily, interceding on our behalf, that we might indeed walk with you in a way that pleases you. Help us, Father, to pray these kinds of things for each other. Help us to live these things out in our own life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.